Let's pray. Father, we uh, have gathered this morning to, uh, to worship you, to declare you worthy, both through what we sing and what we pray and what we praise and as we focus on you. Lord, even now as we listen to your word, may it be an act of worship. May we submit our wills to who you truly are. And may you be present. Father, I would ask that uh, you'd give us the ability to hear your truth this morning, that you'd speak through me, that we'd understand Amos in deep ways and understand ourselves better and most of all understand you better so that we can live better in ways that please you. May it really be truly a time of worship. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it took a while, but we finally got the uh, congregational survey back that many of you participated in. Uh, we'll, we'll try to put together a, a short report of some of the things we've learned from that. Probably the number one thing that stood out for me is um, when it comes to worship, there's no way to please everybody. It's impossible. Uh, and sometimes polarizing. When you look at people's responses to worship, because everybody has their opinion, everybody has their preference, everybody has what they want uh, to happen, everybody has what they think engages them. And it's all over the board. You know, some people say, oh, it's too loud. And other people say, oh, turn it up, it's not loud enough, I want to feel it. Kind of determined it's been a little loud, so we've cranked it back a bit the last few weeks, trying to find that perfect balance between putting enough energy in the room to help people engage at the same time not hurting people's ears. I don't know where that is, but we keep searching for that perfect level of volume. Some people say, you know, we just always do the same old songs. Other people say, you know, we never do any new songs. Some people say, I like the hymns, but don't mess with them. Other people say, I like hymns when you mess with them and make them contemporary. Some people say, I love it when it's dark in here because I can really focus. Other people say, turn on the dang lights. I can't see anybody. I went to Billy and I said, I am glad I don't have your job. I can't sing and I'm not musical. But the problem is you can't make everybody happy. It's impossible. And it is. So the question is, what makes good worship? What, what does it take to have great worship? What's interesting, the book of Amos talks a bit about worship. And if we're honest with what he says, it's going to cause what Larry talked about last week as agitated assessment. So that's my goal this morning, to agitate us a bit, to get us to assess how we think about and how we engage in this whole realm of worship. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to have Jenny come and read Amos chapter 4, and most of our time will be spent there a little bit in chapter 5. 
What I want to do this morning is give you a little background after she reads the text as to what's going on in Israel and then try to go to Amos and pick out what he understands to be great worship. Three things. Jenny, if you could read for us, please. A reading from the book of Amos, chapter 4. Israel has not returned to God. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. The word of the Lord. So what makes great worship? That's a critically important question. In fact, I want us to to look at a quote by John Piper. Um, Worship is what we're created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory and he created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. The church needs to build a common vision of what worship is and what she is gathering to do on Sunday morning and scattering to do on Monday morning. Oftentimes we will reduce worship simply to what happens in this room on a Sunday morning. But worship is so much more than that. I like how Louis Giglio defines worship. 
He says, worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Romans 12, we're told this is your spiritual service of worship, that you offer your bodies a living sacrifice so that you may prove what the will of God is. It's our whole lives that constitute the way we worship. What we do on a Sunday morning is simply to be an expression as a corporate body of what we're committed to in terms of our lives. So Amos addresses the worship in Israel. And it's important to understand some of the background happening in Israel, what's going on, what was set up. If you'll remember, in about 922, there was a war between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, Rehoboam in the south with Judah and Benjamin, and Jeroboam in the north with the other ten tribes. And the nation was split at that moment. The southern part of the nation, what we know as Judah, encompassed Jerusalem. So they had the temple, which was where worship was supposed to take place. Well, Rehoboam being in the north decided, you know, if my people have to go back to Jerusalem to worship, then eventually they'll give in to the leadership in Jerusalem and in the south. So that's not a good deal because then I'll lose my power I'll be captured and be put to death. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 12. So he comes to a decision. He says, you know, what we have to do is create our own institutions of worship. So he builds his own temples, both in Bethel and a place named Dan. And then he sets up high places around the nation. And he, in a sense, tries to copy the worship that's taking place in Jerusalem, but he doesn't have all the trappings. So he goes out and he has two golden cows made. And he places one in Bethel, one in Dan, and those become the objects, the direction of the people's worship. But then they try to imitate everything else that's done in the temple. They offer sacrifices. They have festivals. They go through all the rituals to imitate true worship. So when Amos writes, he is writing to this kind of fabricated worship that is taking place in Israel. So with that in mind, what I want us to realize is he gives us three principles about what makes great worship. And, the, and these are by negative example because Israel is not doing any of these. But the first principle is simply this. Great worship must be based on truth. Look with me back at Amos chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is uh, (laughs) Amos being sarcastic. Okay, this is like a call to worship. And he's saying, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal. And sin even more. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three years. Actually, the word for three years is days. They, they miss the sarcasm in the translation. It can be days or years. It should be days. It makes sense. He's saying, you guys go every morning. You're giving your tithe every three days. I mean, you're into this religious stuff. You're all about, you're sincere. You're devout. You're really religious. 
burn your leavened bread as a thank offering. It wasn't coerced. They were thankful. It, they gave free will offerings. You boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you do, what you love to do. The problem is, they weren't really worshiping God. They were worshiping their conception of Yahweh. They called him Yahweh, Yahweh, but he wasn't really Yahweh. It was golden calves. It, it, it was idolatry. If you really wanted to worship God, you had to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship the Yahweh who was Yahweh. Not a God of your own making. Now what's scary about that is they thought they had it right. Their religious leaders were telling them they had it right. The culture at large was telling them that they had it right. Their own feelings and experience of worship was telling them they had it right. And Amos is saying, no, you don't have it right at all. Because who you think Yahweh is, he is not. Now understand, folks, what we think about God, how we understand God to be, is absolutely and critically important. Uh, Listen to A.W. Tozier, what he writes. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most significant fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in deep heart conceives God to be like. That our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who creates it. A God begotten in the shadow of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. You you see, there is a correspondence between how you think about God and then how you live. It was fascinating to me. I've been looking at some of the prayers of Paul for the church. And in Colossians chapter 1, he prays for the church that they may grow in their knowledge of God. And you wonder why? Because when you grow in your knowledge of God, you begin to understand his will or his desires. And when you begin to understand his will and desires, Paul says you live a life worthy of him. And what's really fascinating, he says, and as you live a life worthy of him, you grow more in your knowledge of God. It's kind of this this spiral of intimacy. So that knowing God has to become the passion of our lives. What has happened here is a kind of identity theft with God. They set up a God who wasn't God, but they really thought it was. Somebody had stolen the identity of God and was playing them, and they didn't realize it. You see, that's always the problem. We have a a tendency, a propensity to, to, to craft God into what we want him to be. It's kind of like God was Play-Doh, you know? The brightly colored thing you give to your kids, Play-Doh is great. My kids loved it. I loved it. Because, man, you can make anything you want out of Play-Doh, and then when you get to the point where you don't like it anymore, you just smash it and start over. 
And sometimes that's how we we we, we kind of do with God. We we kind of create Him into what we want Him to be, right? We we want Him to be gracious and loving, so we we begin to overemphasize that, and we forget about His holiness and His righteousness and His justice. Sometimes we want him really close, so we begin to treat him like a good old buddy and we we lose some of the reverence and the awe. And sometimes we don't like him that close at all, so we we make him far off. And, And we fail to recognize that he's with us and in us all the time. We 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 craft him into what we want him to be. But but here's the reality. God is who he is apart from me. You know, I don't think we get this confused in our culture. We have this this uh, notion of objective truth and subjective truth, okay? Objective truth is things like mathematics, the, the laws of gravity, those things that exist outside of us. And it doesn't matter whether we believe them to be true or not true. They are what they are, Right? And then we have subjective truth. Those are things that we determine. I, I like, you know, burritos smothered in grilled chili. I, I like jazz. I like uh, going to the theater. I like, maybe you don't. What's true for you isn't true for me. That's all. That's subjective. The question is, what category does God fit into? You see, our culture says, oh, it's subjective. God is what you want him to be. Does he work for you? Then that must be what he is. But according to the scriptures, God is objective. He's outside my subjective experience of him or my subjective wants or desires of what I want him to be. He is who he is. Whether I like who he is or not, he exists apart from me. He's objective. And I have to deal with that reality. And if I make him into what he is not then what I'm doing when I worship is idolatry. We don't think of it that way. But that's exactly what it is. You see, that's why revelation is so important. You see, you, you don't discover God in you. You don't discover God out there. You, you're not the determiner of God God is who he is, so because he is who he is, he has to reveal himself to us. It's what we call revelation. That's the amazing thing about this book. Because in this book, God is telling us who he is, what he's like, what he desires. Here, this this is the revelation of, of God. We see him in this book and in the incarnation of Jesus and if we want to know what God is like we look at Jesus and we go into this book and we either accept him or reject him. But we don't mold him into something other. When Danny preached on Amos chapter 1 and 2 I walked out of here wrecked. Because I realized that I wasn't letting God be God. And I was confronted with some things I had minimized 
about God in terms of his judgment, in terms of his holiness, in terms of his hatred of sin, in terms of how he viewed sin. It wasn't just about me and my personal morality. It had to do with things bigger than that. And I've gotten feedback. Well, you know, we shouldn't talk about politics in church. Folks, Amos talks about politics. He's talking about foreign policy when he talks about this nation (laughs) torturing that nation. That's foreign policy. That's politics. And guess what? Our politics are a reflection of our beliefs. And God cares about that stuff. We better be talking about politics. We just need to learn how to do it civilly and not get all defensive. At some point, we have to open our hearts and say, what does God think? What does he think about immigration and his command to love the poor? I don't know what it means in policy, but we better be figuring it out because we're going to be held accountable for it. I don't know what the answer is to gun violence, but I know God isn't happy about it. 900 mass killings in the last few years of four people or more, and we don't hear about them all in the U.S., And that breaks God's heart. And that's off limits to talk about whether we should limit our access to guns or not. We need to talk about it, folks. I don't know the answers. But I know we have to wrestle with them. We better be talking about how we care for the poor. What's the best way to get people health coverage? Those are legitimate questions that our religion, our relationship with God impacts. Because in this book of Amos, we are getting revealed a God who cares about those things. And we need to care about them and we need to figure it out. I wasn't even going to go there this morning. (laughs) Folks, Worship begins with the truth of who God is, whether we like him or not. One of the things I really appreciate about Billy, who leads us in worship, is his commitment to make sure that the songs we sing reflect the reality of who God is. And he's always talking about that, and we're always wrestling about that. (laughs) Because unfortunately what we sing creates more of our theology than what we read in the scriptures. But he's good at it. So worship has to be based in truth. Second, worship, in worship, in great worship, God must be the focus, not us. Uh, look back with me at Amos 4, verses 4 through 5 again. We could jump up. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three years. And then notice this. Burn your leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is this is what you love to do. Man, their worship was about them, right? It made them feel good. It made them feel so good. It was therapeutic. I mean, they walked out of that thinking they were awesome. They were bragging about it. And Amos says, man, <laughs> you, guys, you guys love to do it. You love it so much, man, you're there every day because it's just giving you the, the religious high. 
making you feel grand. Look, folks, worship is not about what makes us feel good. It's it's about what honors God, what glorifies Him, what magnifies His reality. It's, It's not about us. Yet we, we make it all about us. I mean, think about how we evaluate. If I ask you, and I, ask, and I fall into this myself all the time, you know, we, every week we sit down and we ask, how was the worship? Well, a couple problems with that. One, we reduce worship to music and preaching. And we, in our culture, give way too much weight to music and preaching and, and determine that that's worship. Number one. Number two, when we evaluate the music and the preaching, it's all about how it made me respond and feel and did I like it. Right? Oh, worship was great this morning. I really liked that. I really like, I really liked that song. It really, really gave me this experience. Really? And it's all about my experience of what took place at this moment. Here's a crazy notion. Do you think you could walk out of the worship service and feel that it was awesome and God be ticked and think it was lousy? Yeah, look look at chapter 5. This is how God is reacting to their great worship that's making them feel so good and so awesome that they're bragging about. Chapter 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river in righteousness, like a never-failing stream. Why? Because they had made worship about them when worship was supposed to be about God. So when we evaluate worship, it really has nothing to do with our preferences. It really has nothing to do with our likes or dislikes. It really has nothing to do with how it makes us feel or this great religious experience we had. It has everything to do with the question, was God honored? Was He glorified? Was His reality lifted up? Was He pleased? You see, we, we, we have a whole misguided framework about worship and we really reinforce it every time we walk in here because you guys sit out there and we stand up here and we think we're the performers and we think you're the audience and that's because you're the audience we're the performers you get to judge how good a job we did and that's a whole misconstrued framework because number one you're not the audience and number two we're not the performers God is the audience we're the facilitators And you are the performers. And the question is, is did you perform well and did we facilitate well? And the only way we can determine that is to figure out how he responded. But man, we come in here and we come in with scorecards. Well, I'll give worship a three today. Or I'll give, you know, the sermon. Nick was off today. It's only a 4.2.
It's not about us. But we make it all about us, and we make it all about the music, and we make it all about the preaching. And you know what's happened in evangelical Christianity? We are taking church and we're making it a commodity to be consumed rather than a community to be committed to. Right? We go church shopping. Now look, folks, when you're looking for a community to engage to, you kind of evaluate. You you ask yourself, does this does this church teach the truth? What's their doctrine like? How do they handle the scriptures? What's their mission and vision and focus and what they're trying to accomplish? What's the leadership like? Is it trustworthy? And it's okay to look at the programs, you know? How's the preaching? How's the worship? How's the kids? How's the youth? All that stuff. And by the way, they don't have to be superlative. Those things just need to be good enough. Think about it. Do you think if you sit under amazing worship and amazing preaching, you're going to be an amazing Christian? No. You can sit under mediocre. Some of the best Christians I know sit under lousy preaching. Go figure. And, and literally crappy worship from our perspective. But it's a, it's a commodity and we're consumers. You get to a point where you evaluate a church, you see, and that's okay, but at some point you move it from being a commodity to be a community that you say, I'm committing to. And now it's my people and it's my church. And I'm here for the long haul. Don't mishear me. I'm not down on quality. But I tell young preachers, you know, you need to be more like Pete Rose than Babe Ruth. And I'm not talking about their ethics. I'm talking about their hitting. Babe Ruth hit lots of home runs, but most of the time he struck out. Peter Rose, Pete Rose, Peter Rose, Pete Rose at least got on base most of the time. Good enough. I tell, tell preachers, just hit a single, just hit a double. Once in a while, God will bless you with a home run. But if you get on base over the long term, people will hear the truth of God and be transformed. You see, and we, we, we unintentionally, we teach to our kids that church is a commodity. Uh, we uh, wrestle with this all the time with teenagers. You know, they don't like the youth group. My friends don't go there. So what do parents do? Be well-intentioned because they're scared to death. Their kids won't embrace their faith. So what do they tell them? Well, go over here. Go over there. Go to the next cool thing. Go there. And what we're doing is we're planting the seed. We're telling our kids, oh, it's really about you. Church is just a commodity. It's just, we're just about consuming religious goods and services. My daughter, Danielle, came to me. This was years ago. And she said, Dad, the, 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 the youth group sucks. And I said, you know, honey, you're right. It's not very good. And she says, Dad, I want, I want to go someplace else. And I knew I was scared at that moment because we always had a rule in our family that if you lived with us, you came to church. I can't make you believe that's up to you but it can make you attend. And by the way, we do it. I can't make my kids learn, but I can doggone make sure they go to school. And if their spiritual life is more important, why wouldn't I make them go to church? I never understood that. But I make them go to church, don't make them believe, but now she's saying it's not good. 
And I was thinking if I make her go, I'm going to be cramming it down her throat. But if I let her go someplace else, I'm planting the seed that it's just a commodity. It's all about you. And I didn't know what to do. I, I made a lot of mistakes as a parent. But I think maybe at this juncture I got it right. I told her, honey, you're right. The youth group is not very good. But it's your youth group. And this is your church. And this is your community. And we're in this together. And it's not a product to be consumed. And it's not a commodity. And you just don't bail when it's going bad. You make a decision to get in there and make it better. And she, she said, okay. Man, she, she met with our youth pastor and uh, she did everything in her power to get involved and make it better. So she didn't get to go to the cool place and it wasn't most entertaining and it wasn't where all her friends were. But there was a seed planted in her heart about what church is. And in a sense, what ultimately worship is, it's about God and his community and what honors and glorifies him. Not about her. Not about her. So the focus in worship has to be on God, not us. Last thing. Worship has to be transformational. Let's go back to the uh, Amos chapter 5 passage. God is really ticked off at their worship part of it is they've made it about them but the other piece is it's not impacting their lives so at the end he says well not listen to the music of your harps but let justice roll on like a river righteous like a never failing stream he's saying you, you're worshipping me with your lips but you're denying me with the way you live you say, I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe, the compassionate one, but you cannot show compassion towards the poor. You're grinding them into the ground. You're taking advantage of them. You say you worship me, but you don't value what I value because I value compassion and care for others. Yet you're taking all your resources, all your wealth, and you're just consuming it on yourself and saying, oh, God blessed me. And forgetting that with that re-blessing comes this huge responsibility for the common good for other people. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Obviously I've read this because I've read the Bible before, but I had missed it. This was really convenient. He says, Ezekiel's talking. Okay, the prophet. He says, as for you, son of man, they call him son of man. Your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses saying to each other, come, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. I mean, they're jazzed about him. He's a new thing in town. They're excited. He's cool. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. And I thought, boy, if that's not a good description of the church in America, I don't know what is. We're all about the love songs. We're all about the entertaining message. We want to be amused. We want our emotions touched. But I'm not sure it's translating into much obedience. 
Go worship God and then go home and smoke a joint and sleep with my girlfriend. Go worship God and Monday I go back to my work and I lie about the business deal. Or I mistreat my employees. Or I don't pay a fair wage. Or I go worship God and then I use all my stuff about me. What I want, what I want to do. And shut my eyes to the plight of those less fortunate. You see, true worship has to be transformative. And in this passage, the transformation comes in terms of justice and righteousness. Justice is a, a Hebrew term, misvat, okay? And it means protecting people's rights. Okay, listen to what Tim Keller writes about this in Generous Justice. This is a great book, by the way, if you want to understand justice and righteousness. Great stuff. He says, misfat or justice of the society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of the quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice or misfat. He's talking about the quartet of the vulnerable, which is the orphan, the widow, the immigrant and the poor. All because they're vulnerable, God says we have to give them special care. And if you don't give them special care, God sees it as injustice. We want to shrink morality so it only has to do with our personal behavior. As long as I'm not lying or I'm not cheating or I'm not sleeping with my neighbor's wife, then I'm just or righteous. Not according to the, uh, the, the Old Testament. If you're not involved in the common good and making a better society, taking care of the most vulnerable and engaged and simply retreating, the Old Testament sees that as injustice. The, the word for justice is misfought. The word for righteousness is tzatikah. And righteousness has to do with relationships. So it's justice lived out in the context of community. So it's a social righteousness. It's how we treat as a community, as a politic, as a city, as a community, as a government, as whatever, you, as a church, the social fabric. How as in our social fabric do we treat the least of these? True worship always transforms the heart. Because in true worship, we're bending our will to the will of God and lifting Him up. And as we do that, as we bend our will to His will, we take on His values. We take on His compassion. We begin to love and care about what He loves and cares about. And if that's not happening, then it's not true worship. Say, Nick, okay, that's great. That's all abstract stuff. What, what, tell me what I'm supposed to do to be just and righteous. Okay, and l- let me tell you Begin close, okay? How do you treat those who serve you? How do you treat the poor you know? How do you treat your co-workers? 
How do you treat the people who work for you? Do you pay them a fair wage? Are you honest in your business dealings? Do you lie on your taxes? Those kind of things all have to do with justice, righteous, close at home. Okay? Start there. But then it has to move beyond there. Get involved with the vulnerable. Get involved with the poor. Uh, Take on a compassion kit. Or two compassion kits. Or three compassion kits. Sign up to tutor a whiz kid, a little kid from the inner city who has trouble reading. Man, you'll change their life. Contact, save our youth and mentor a teenager who's trying to get out of the cycle of poverty that goes on in our inner city. That's justice and righteousness. Now, find a cause. You don't like talking about immigration, okay, but you can still do something. Get involved with African Hope because they're refugees. Come to this legitimately, legally. Okay, they're here. And they don't understand the culture. So get involved with them and help them figure out what a vacuum is and how to use an oven and how to (laughs) clean a house that's not all dirt. African Hope. Get involved with the county. Adopt a senior citizen. It's the fastest growing population in South Jeffco. Seniors, what an opportunity to go and visit a shut-in, to go with a, a senior who is so lonely, they'd love to spend time with anybody. Get involved. You don't like me talking about gun violence, so let's talk about mental health. Get involved with the mental health in Jefferson County. Larry did this great thing. He signed up to be on the board at Jefferson County in their mental health area. And next week he gets to do a lecture (laughs) on morality and mental health. (laughs) From a Christian perspective, they asked him. You see, that's justice and righteousness. So look for a cause. Worship is based on truth, is focused on God, and results in transformation. That's great worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to be a place that engages in great worship. Help us. We ask for Jesus' sake, for our sake, for the kingdom's sake. Help us. Amen.